Hello BAP Nation, what's up? Zivi Kiwi here and welcome to episode 3 of season 8. Today is going to be very inspirational. We're going to hear an interview with Drew Ripley. This guy knows how to run marathons and you will understand more when you hear his journey. Enjoy and see you at the other end. Take your balloons to the next level as we delve deeper into what truly makes a professional balloon artist with your host, Zivi Kivi. Now, welcome to the Balloon Artist Podcast. Hello, Balloon Artist Podcast Nation. This is season eight, and the interviewee of today is actually a returning guest of this show, and this is the one and only Drew Ripley, all the way from Canada. Hello, Drew. Hello. Wow, this has been quite a journey since you've been interviewed on the first time and we've discussed back then all sorts of topics like how to maintain your physique, how to keep in good shape. I have the luxury of seeing you now live on this Zoom tool that we're using. So I see you're still in shape and it's just so much fun to meet again and talk. So hello, Drew. The first question I have for you, Drew, is I don't think I ever heard the first balloon story of Drew Ripley. Tell me all about my, that. My first balloon story. Oh, boy. See, now I have to think. So my first balloon story would be from oh, Marvin Hardy's book, actually. That's where it started from. 1986, I think, is the book I have of his. And it came right after my... It was an 86 book. So I got it right after my 10th birthday. It's a couple of years old by that point, the book. And it was in a magic kit, actually. It was like a large kit of multiple things. And I just started playing. I started playing with balloons right from the get-go, just as I was playing with magic. And eventually, you know, the unicycles came, came along. That was several years later. But the balloons always stuck with me. So at first, but, you know, my parents would drop a bag of balloons to keep me busy kind of thing. And I mastered most of Marvin's designs within a year or two, and then just sort of played with it. I always sort of played with these balloons on the side. So how long is that ago? Like, how long ago is that? Oh, my gosh. 20 plus years now, 21 years. And how long have you been working professionally in balloons and in the entertainment niche? This is 10 years now. 10 years with balloons as the focus. Amazing. And you live in, in a place in Canada where it's kind of cold in the winter, isn't it? Oh, yes, yeah, quite chilly. Certainly not as, not as chilly as, say, Calgary, but we're just south of Toronto here by about an hour. And it gets cold, it gets snowy. There are days where you look outside and go, gee, I'd rather stay in. <laughs> but you do it. And also, you specifically have actually been involved since the last time we've discussed on the show with breaking some world records in regards to actually twisting outside in the cold in ridiculous weather. So what is that all about? That is me being a goofball, to be perfectly honest. We had a New Year's event. It wasn't this year. It was the year before. And my client was really nervous because it was brutally cold. It was going to be like minus 18 Celsius plus a wind chill on top of that. And with the wind chill, you can get into the minus 30s. So his concern was, well, what the heck are we going to do? 
because who knows who's going to show up and I'm spending all this money and my boss is really nervous and I've got to look good. And I said, okay, let's do this. You've got me coming. You know, I'm not going to be able to produce at lightning speed. I'm not making 30 balloon characters an hour or something crazy like that. We just can't do it. And even in those temperatures, if there are kids, they don't stick around for long. So what do we do to make things more entertaining? And I had to go through quite a process, like a little bit of research. And I'd run outside when it was cold, middle of the night, like two in the morning. So I get the coldest temperatures possible. And I would play with balloons and seeing how well I could protect my hands. It gets pretty tough if you're wearing great big mittens or gloves or whatever. It's nearly impossible to twist balloons because you just have too much stuff in them. And through a lot of trial and error, eventually I came up with a system where I had various heaters all over my gloves so that I could do this. And then I set a challenge out on YouTube and said, this is, this is the temperature that I've done it at. And here's the rules. You've got to be able to, I think I said five, you have to make five balloons in a row and the air in your pump or your lungs, should you choose, can't be preheated. So in your pump's case, you can't be like just bringing it outside. That pump's got to be cold too. And it was a really interesting maneuver because it created a spectator thing. People are watching me. They think it's really silly. My client was really happy because I figured out how to use time since the three kids that were there are basically too cold for anything. I mean, I mean they, of course, had balloons, but there just wasn't a lot of activity. So we made it look like there was activity and that we were having fun. It was still a good New Year's party. It was just the right thing to do. So sometimes world records are a way to have more fun with a client, to give them something extra. And it doesn't take too much work to videotape things effectively. Stick them on YouTube, do a Facebook Live, just have a little fun with it. But you also submitted it officially It was recognized as a world record. Is that right? It went in with Record Setter. So there's a couple different record-keeping companies. Guinness being the most famous, Record Setter is much more open to different types of ridiculous records. I think they're actually going through a major transition right now. I know they've been posting things, but they're changing things up. So we'll see what comes from it. And yeah, it's just an extra bonus. Is it expensive to do? No, that's free. No, let's make this clear. Submitting to record setter is free. What you do for all the work into the record might cost you some money. Yeah, makes sense. It's a bit a lot, you know, uh, a logistic problem to solve. With many of your uh, records that you broke, there's either a logistic problem you solved or some skill that you've been practicing, like you did one with driving. unicycling or recycling, sorry, cycling on small bicycle with a balloon on top of your head, a climbing side balloon on top of your head. How yep. was that all? What, what's the story around that? Okay, so that, that one was unbelievably difficult. And it's, I'm at the point in my career where I get to pick fun projects. There are things that I just want to do. So I do them. Now, that doesn't mean that I have money falling out of the sky for it. Sometimes I have to come up with an idea and then I go and find somewhere to pitch it to or whatever. But it's fun to have these ideas come up and say, yeah, I'm going to chase after that one we did because we wanted to go through the experience of proper record keeping. And we wanted to come up with a record that was just a complete joke, just something very, very ridiculous. But its purpose was for my little team to say, okay. What do we have to record? How do we measure it? How do we record it effectively without buying you know, half a dozen cameras or hiring a big crew? 
What other information do we need? How do we mark this thing? And let's also experience what it's like for me to do the act itself, plus dealing with spectators and so on. Just finding a space to do it where we weren't overloaded with spectators was a real challenge. It was hard because people are naturally curious. Just going outside in my outfit, if I've got the yellow tie on, then it's game on. I'm working. I step out that front door. I am on because I have to be because the neighborhood kids know me. My neighbors know me. It's just part of the show. So this was an interesting experience to go through it. And we actually are hoping that it will lead to other records in time. There are a few other fun things that are coming based off of this experience. But its number one function was our crew saying, let's solve this. Let's experience it. Let's write down notes so that when the next one happens, we're ready to go. Wow. This is all very inspiring. And to see you a few years later doing more and more impressive stuff like you've been doing back then, Gertrude, the stilts, full body, bird costume that actually interacts with people. And uh, just not uh, long ago, in the month of April of 2019, you actually released the knowledge of how to create Gertrude in a course on Balloon Artist College. How was the experience of releasing one of your babies, one of the designs that made you so different? Gertrude is such a fascinating creature because there are people out there that have made balloon birds. Balloon birds are out there. But I always believe that it could be taken much further. I wanted a balloon bird that worked. I wanted it to sing and dance and talk and, and so on. And I remember thinking about this for a while because what happens with some of my larger projects, they, they define themselves with their own personality after a time. So, for example, when I'm building a character for an event, I had one last weekend, I was building a person. The person that I'm making does not have a name when I start. The name happens as I'm building. And as soon as that happens, I get to define the character further. And it's really, really exciting when that happens. It, it becomes its own personality. And sometimes if my kids are around, they start referring to what this character is. And Gertrude went out, we went out a lot of times that first season. I mean, just, just an incredible number. And she developed this personality just by interacting with No different than when you're acting and you're, you're working on a character for yourself. It's exactly the same thing when you're putting it into a puppet. Releasing the design at first was really hard because like this was my thing. I had taken a bird. I had made it animatronic. I figured out a way to make the mouth work and so on. And I was kind of nervous about it. I didn't really want to release. This is something that just, you know, this is a special relationship between Gertrude and I. But once we started getting into the course and developing it, teaching it live, it's so rewarding because all the joy that I got to see from my work when I went out on my own has been compounded. It's huge. I've gotten notes from people that have taken this bird out and done things and happy kids. And let's face it, if you're in this business, I hope you're in it because you're trying to make the world a little happier and a little more fun. So sure, nerves at the beginning and boy, this is a secret thing that I've developed, but I'm just happy to see Happy kids. I mean, that's what we want. Plus, it looks to me from the side when I see you with all of your latest and greatest that you didn't stop developing new ideas and new concepts. And you're, you're obviously getting some results. Like, tell us all about this. If it's okay to talk about the big show that you're working on. 
Yeah, we can talk about it now. Okay. It's just about time to work on it now. We're well deep in development. I really enjoy the performance side of balloon art. I love it. Now, my first experience on a stage as a performer, I still have the letter. It's a thank you letter. And this is a paid performance. It was 1991. I was 12 at the time, I could think there. And I had, I don't know, about 100 people. And I was, I was doing a magic show. Very simple magic show. I had memorized the patterns that came with the tricks. And I just worked my way through it. Now, at that point in my life, I was a huge Doug Henning fan and big fan of David Copperfield. I knew about Siegfried and Roy and a lot of the big performers that were out of Las Vegas and traveling. And I, I started sort of playing around with birthday parties at that time. Over the years, I've gotten much more into it. I've got my own show, the Balloon Making Machine show, where I've made custom props that uh, do basically what I need to a cross between magic and balloons. I have another show under development that's going to be similar, but a little bit more science-based. I'm still in the process of writing, figure out how that will work so I can work with schools. And this new show, this one I've wanted to do forever. So if you think back to like Doug Henning and some of the variety shows of the era, variety shows are, they are so much fun because as an audience, you get to see different ideas and different acts and they're just silly. We don't have a lot of variety shows left anymore. They exist, but not many of them. And I thought, well, after having all these conversations, I go to these conventions, I come back and my friends will say, or my fans will say, hey, I really want to see one of these stage competitions at one of these shows. How can I come see it? And the answer is get on a plane and register for a convention. That's, that's the only way you can do it right now. And I said, forget that. I'll just bring one here. So that's what I'm doing. In September, we have a big show coming. I'm flying people in. We've got this cute little theater that we've rented out. We're going to be hosting a balloon variety show. The only rule that all the people coming in have is that whatever their act is, it must involve balloons. And that will be very, very interesting because we have people that are a little more interested in the magic side of things. So maybe, for example, it's a production box where a balloon comes out. There's still a balloon involved. To people that are, are full out, clowns and very silly with balloons and slapstick or people that are defining them uh, complete stories full seven minute story using just balloons the show itself is called theater of whimsy and that is actually most of my focus is on the word whimsy and just releasing ourselves into something silly and lighthearted. let's just forget what's going on in the outside world and come into this bizarre, funny, amusing place of balloons. Just to make your life a little bit easier, the cast is already closed. There are no free spots in the cast for the show. Am I right? For this year, yes, okay. that is correct. Because uh, if this airs prior to September, which it will, then uh, I don't want you to get like 50 emails saying, hey, pick me, pick me. So... After September, sure, send the emails then. Guys, come say hello on the convention. But uh, prior to that, yeah, not this year. I have a, a whirlwind of an assistant who has made sure that I am an organized person. So this is something that started in January of this year. We had already made the decision and we were moving forward. So 
when people see a big thing or that I start advertising that a big project is coming, I probably already have my crew or my cast set because that's how far in advance I'm looking. Cool. Is it already okay to mention just a few of the names of the performances that will be coming? Absolutely. We can talk a little bit about that. I am delighted to say that any Schlesinger is coming back. Danny and I have been working together for a while. Danny is one of my hosts, and he's also the director of this show. Now, a lot of people think that I am always the director of my events, and sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm the producer, because both roles are super critical. So Danny's coming. He's directing myself. He's organizing a lot of the show components to make sure that the, the show itself runs properly, that each individual act works out really well. And then I'm, of course, focused on the producing elements of it, making sure that we sell, making sure that ideally we sell out and that we can do it again. A few other names? That... A few other names. Well, there's myself, a friend of mine named DJ. He's actually in town. He's a local magician, just a phenomenal performer, but he will be using balloons for this. I have another friend coming from England as well. Olivia Post is coming for this one. She's providing a really different act. And that was something I thought about a lot with this is that the beauty of these stage competitions when they come up is that the ideas tend to be delightfully varied. They're all across the map. Perfect. It's what I want to give my audience. I want them to experience a very diverse range of balloon art. So Olivia is coming. She's got a really neat story she's going to be sharing with us. I also have Andrea Noel coming which is unbelievably lucky because she's one of the most talented performers I've ever worked with. And to have her for a couple of days here is, is just incredible. And she'll be producing something in the costume puppetry range. I don't know exactly what yet. I don't need to know yet. That's between her and Danny. Already quite an impressive lineup. Are you developing new material for this show? Oh, yes, absolutely. I have one act. So there's, there's one act that I've used many times. And I will be using that act because it's a good act. There is a second act, which I simply won't talk about here because it will be debuted on Theater of Whimsy. Needless to say, all of the physical work I do for myself, my work with my makerspace, all of that is being combined into the hardest balloon illusion I've ever attempted. There's a serious risk that I may injure myself in the process, it fails along the way. So I'm taking it super, super duper carefully, but it's something that I've had under development for more than a year now. And I already have the script mostly put together and it's just a special thing for this audience. And if it goes well, then it will continue on to other places. I really love how you build your progress one step at a time, but each step helps you to develop the next step. So like working on your abilities physically so that you could do the stilts and so that you could be in shape to perform and twist for a long time has allowed you to do all sorts of, of crazy stunts that builds up your business as well and that allowed you to build all sorts of actual numbers and routines for your shows that are not necessarily something that everyone can do. And the same goes with your makerspace where You've been involved more and, and more about into your makerspace recently. I want to ask you about it in a minute. But mm -hmm. basically, you leverage your technical friends and networking uh, group in order to be able to actually make stuff for your show that 
will actually be refreshing and new and impressive for the kids, for your audience. So tell me, what is the current adventure with the Makerspace? You seem to be very involved in that. Oh, yes. The Makerspace is a big place. Makerspaces, if you're not familiar, are, in essence, a shared shop. And that's really as far as I would define it. Almost every major city has one to some extent. They're worth looking into. I would go find them. Take the time. Go find them. Meet people because you'll find in these spaces. And we were sitting around 75 members or so and just just cramped. We had to move it. And as with our makerspace, it's actually an elected board. So I am on the board there. I'm currently the chair. And our board, when we ran, we decided, well, we're going to have to move. We, we have to move to the next place. So through an incredibly busy winter, we ended up moving just down the street. We now have six and a half thousand square feet. We have grown by about 35 members in the last four weeks. And we're going to be probably around 150 members, if we're lucky, by the end of the year, which is good because that also helps pay our bills. The kind of leap that this was, this was an extraordinary effort. I mean, I have the board members that I got to work with are phenomenal individuals, dedicated people. They all have their passions. We had members that put in more time than, than can be imagined. We've got heavy tools. We've got a Bridgeport mill that's several years old, but the thing weighs 5,000 pounds. Imagine a bunch of volunteers trying to move a 5,000-pound tool. All of this stuff, the collaboration and the cooperation exists there just for the place to survive. So when you turn it around and you say, hey, I got something weird I want to do. What would I do if I wanted to fill in the blank? All of a sudden, all these great ideas can come up. And some of them are completely ridiculous. And some of you are like, wait a minute, I think I can chase that. I can, I can go after that. I think sometimes as performers and entertainers, we forget that you know, we go to our classes and it's really important to learn this stuff, have good technique and learn a couple of recipes that are really good. But you also have to find what makes you unique. Because the best thing that can ever happen in for you as a performer is that you are unique from another performer. It's good for both of you. It's good for your audience. And it lets you explore in ways that you didn't think were possible. So I spent a lot of time at that lab. There's a lot of great new events coming. I actually, I found a, I found a foosball table, one of those little soccer game tables that was destined for the garbage dump, rescued that. I've been slowly reconditioning it as just sort of a group project that we get to go and play with which is all about people coming together, having some fun, learning from each other, developing the relationships, and then see where it goes. This is exactly why conventions are still important and meeting people online even. There are makerspace all over the world. So if you hear this right now and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I can't join a makerspace, I'm not very technical, what will I do? What would you say for someone like that? The world belongs to people that show up. That's what I would say. In my space, our last shop, the 2,000 square foot space, one of the problems that we had was that it was very daunting. So we changed where we are so it's a little more friendly. You come in and, and we try to break that fear of the unknown and, and you get to be greeted by someone. That at least helps. In our membership, we have people like myself who entertain. We have metal shop people, wood shop people. We have people that join because they're fascinated by governance and that is actually their focus. They understand how to run a place like this. And they like meeting people at places like this. So for them, it's just a social club. And maybe while they're there, they'll say, hey, you know what? I really would like to learn how to use the 3D printer. 
And most of these places have some form of internal training. It's not really training you can take out into the workforce. It's not like you're going to come to our makerspace and leave as a millwright. But you could come into our space and learn how to safely use a table saw. This is a good skill. It's a good skill to have. So that's the kind of training that happens. And we're very open when people come in because we do have a lot of people. And in our space, part of it is being in Canada and where we live. One of the most beautiful things I've seen happen, we were a pretty diverse group before we moved. Now that we're bigger, every religion, every race is in here, every belief structure is in here. And we really only have one rule, which is you've got to get along with everyone. So you can disagree, that's fine. But you've got to get along with everyone and cooperate. That doesn't mean that you're going to come in and be the world's best expert at something, and that's why you're joining. You're joining because there's this amazing community of ideas. I think that some people are afraid of doing networking where each person needs to talk for one minute and do an elevator pitch. And then you need to maybe once in every few weeks meet with people personally and try to help each other and hire each other and stuff like that. And on a makerspace, you just go there and you learn from people and you try to work with, with new skills and new ideas and from those relationships comes opportunities to brainstorm new tools, new equipment, and new shows and routines. Yep. And it's quite important. Absolutely. I'll give you a good example. So we're used to networking. I'm part of the Chamber of Commerce. Networking events like that, there's like breakfast meetings. It's exactly the same thing. And you've got to have your pitch. Those have a place. You could, if you were in this area, come to the makerspace and become a member and just come out Friday night. Friday night, once a month, we have board game night. You're still networking. Friday nights for me are a little bit harder. I'm typically performing, but Friday nights, there it is. There is a networking opportunity. Come in, meet some people, have some fun playing a board game. You learn a bit about them. Just ask people questions. Just ask them the simple questions. What do you do here? What do you like to make? You know, stuff like that goes a long way. And, and sometimes I think when we're used to hearing about networking, we're used to hearing sort of the higher pressure events. And those are good if you can manage them, but they aren't the only way to do it because long-term relationships mean a lot too. So this is really cool. I hope someone actually does that. Like if you're a little bit of an introvert and you want still the power of networking and the power of, of connection with other people, which is very powerful, then that is another option for you, the makerspace. Wow. Drew, what is the next think for you after the theater of whimsy do you already know what is the next challenge i am at the phase where i am brewing a challenge so i've done a few things like last year with actually some of the maker people their help was balder and that was my two-person costume that was rideable and any project that is like that is it's minimum a year and it usually sort of rumbles around in my head for a good six months. I just let it rumble around up there for a while and see where it goes. And I'm not exactly sure what my next one is, but it's always a climb. And I've got some ideas of what I might do. My focus right now has to be on this theater. Theater shows take a lot of work. There's a lot of logistics. I've got websites to build and photos to put out and all this sort of stuff. And that's normal. But the next project will be a physical build. I know that. I know it will be very unusual. I know it will be something that has not been seen before, and it will be something that no one has done before. Now, that's very cryptic for me to put out podcast, 
but it's it's how I think. It's like that's the starting rules that my brain comes up with. Well, I've already done a two-person rideable dragon, so what do I do next that's bigger and harder and more developed? So that's sort of how I how I think. For the near term, though, it's I really it's going to be all work on this show. You're also a member of Team Canada. Are you planning any upcoming competition next year, or is it too soon? It's too soon right now for us. We were really lucky with worlds in the sense that our CBC Canada Broadcast Corporation actually did a documentary on us. And that was just a phenomenal experience. You can check it out online. It's called Fit to be Tied. They, it was a funny thing because when they did that, you have no idea what's going to happen when you go to compete. And they, they came out of nowhere. They filmed us like crazy. We had cameras all over the place. We had mics on us all the time and, and you name it. And they ended up making this really beautiful 15-minute story, which is worth seeing. In any experience like that, it's very draining. We had a great time. I have so much respect for this team. What the people on this team can do is phenomenal. And having that relationship and, and people that I can go to where demographically and culturally what they're experiencing is similar to me is really really important say hey I'm stuck with this what do you do it's very similar in a lot of ways to a makerspace except it's a fine-tuned balloon makerspace for us will we compete again I would be pretty confident we'll be competing again nothing's planned though we need a bit of a break from experiencing worlds twist and shout after that the documentary the It was a lot. It was, it was an incredible amount of pressure for all of us. Plus, there's no WBC next year. Yes, we don't have to make a decision right away. <laughs> right, exactly. Cool. Oh boy, I really think there's another interview coming up in another season because it's just so much fun to see you grow through Ripley. You inspire many, including myself. I want to thank you for all of the things that you do to contribute to this industry, to push the borders. And just even with your costume that two people can wear and that actually is a rideable costume. And you need to understand this. Actually, there's a person riding a balloon sculpture, which is a dragon sculpture, so, which is huge. We will put the video, if you don't mind, of Boulder in balloonartistpodcast.com in the show notes of today's episode. So really, it's so inspiring to see so many things that you're working on. You really do know how to take a project and plan it and go through it and dream big and execute big. So I love it. Drew Ripley, thank you for coming back for the Balloon Artist Podcast. Anything else you want us to know before we wrap up? No, I think that covers lots. I'm actually, I'm looking forward to sharing when Theater Whimsy is complete, when my first round of show is complete. Because again, No different than Balder or Gertrude or all these projects that I've gone through, I pick a target. It's usually something that, that I dreamed up decades ago, and I'm just like, no, oh, I have to do this because it's something about who I am and what I want to experience. And then once it's done, then you get to do it again or bigger or better or share it or whatever, and that's the best. Well, I definitely hope that happens. And we also have a few things uh, planned into the future, like a lecture for Balloon Artist College. We'll get that sorted soon too and announce everyone uh, with the details. This is very interesting for me personally because it's going to be a lecture on the topic of business. So a lot of good stuff coming your ways, guys, that listen to this right now. 
Thank you again, Drew Ripley. And see you next week on Balloon Artist Podcast. Bye, guys. Thanks so much. Wow, I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Drew Ripley. I sure love watching his journey and how much details he puts into growing his skills, getting better and better as a performer, and not limiting himself to doing only twisting, uh, but doing more of what he really desires and that is performing. And we've created a resource for you in Balloon Artist Podcast. This is actually a lecture that can really help you move forward with your twisting and becomes more of an entertainer with your balloons. Uh, that is a lecture from our Line Walk Alternatives uh, le- uh, course that is, it used to be called The Death of the Line Walk. That name still applies, but we call it uh, in a more uh, clean way, uh, the Line Walk Alternatives. And you can find a lecture from that course available for you for free in balloonartistpodcast.com. All you need to do is go to balloonartistpodcast.com, find season eight, episode three, and uh, sign up for the free course. So thank you again for listening to Drew Ripley's inspiring interview, and see you next week on Balloon Artist Podcast. Hello, Balloon Artist Podcast Nation, Zivi Kivi here, and this is Season 8, Chapter 3, and this is the tip section. And today's tip is about labels. And I'm talking about the type of labels that we actually put on ourselves. So, I want to read something for you, and then later I'll tell you a quick story about how I got rid of a label and what it meant for me in my life. And this is taken from an infographic made in kivimedia.co slash getting rid of labels. And we will put a link for that in balloonartistpodcast.com. So getting rid of labels. Some labels slow us down and include limiting beliefs about ourselves. Usually you can identify them by being able to say, I am bad at blank, right? Just for example, I'm bad at finances. But actually being bad at something only means you are somewhat skillful at blank. You are somewhat skillful at finances. What can you do to become more than that? Read a book, consume podcasts, do e-courses. All of these will change you. Now you can say, I'm skillful at, not just somewhat. What can you do to push yourself to the next level? Usually, it's just hard work. Keep at it. Optimize the learning. Optimize the doing. And soon enough, though, soon enough, you will say, I am proficient at blank. By now, most likely, you're already giving advice to other people. Remember, originally, you were bad at this, and now you're a reliable source of information. Want to push yourself to the next level? It only takes more hard work, but it pays. In no time, you might or will find yourself saying, I am a master at blank. Now you can sell your services to other people who are bad at this. You used to be bad at this back when you allowed yourself to not do the hard work because 
of a label. So the backstory is that we all have labels and we just allow ourselves to give up so fast because of those labels. Like, I am bad at technology, I am bad at finances, I am bad at marketing, uh, I am bad at magic, whatever it is. We tell ourselves that we are bad at something, but actually, every time that you are bad at something, you are actually comparing yourself to someone else. So you are actually somewhat skillful at the same thing. The fact that I, I, was, I used to be bad at finances, I'm not bad at finances anymore. But even when I was bad at finances, I, would, I was actually somewhat skillful at finances. I already knew somewhat, some of the, the terminology on finances, I already understood the mathematical side of things. I just put it, didn't put in the work, I didn't put in the learning, I didn't consume podcasts and courses and read books. Once I decided to get rid of the label, I actually took a big piece of paper, it was cardboard, and I wrote down on it, I'm bad at finances. And I took that piece of cardboard and I've burned it to the ground with fire. And I told myself, from now on, I will no longer be bad at finances. And once the label was gone, I was able to ask myself, so what would a person that is on its way to mastering finances, what would he do? What type of, of, of action will prove that he's on its way to mastering finances? And I started reading books, and I started monitoring my finances, and I've started to consult with other people about it, and soon enough, I became really proficient more than just proficient, I became profitable as a business. And that profitability wouldn't, it wouldn't even be possible to measure it if it wasn't for me being good at finances. In these days, I coach other people, other balloon people through the KM challenge on how they can become profitable too. So I became, in essence, a master in finances. I help other people with their finances and with their business and life through coaching, through the KM Challenge. So I hope that this is inspiring for you. I hope that you uh, take a look deep inside of you. What are some of your limiting beliefs? Maybe it's, I'm bad at technology, so I shouldn't have a website. I shouldn't build one. Maybe it's, I'm bad at uh, copywriting, so I shouldn't write an email right now for my email list uh, of my customers. Whatever it is, find out what is your label and have a think about looking it at your label at, from the other side. Not as someone that is bad at something, but as someone that is just, just somewhat skillful. And then take action, take action. How can you become more skillful? And one of the ways to become more skillful at least with Balloon Art and the business around Balloon Art is to go over to balloonartistcollege.com and sign up for the club. And with that, I hope to see you next week on Balloon Artist Podcasts. Bye-bye, guys.